Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. She makes beer. She brings me cheer. I really like that she's here. It's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Beer is like sunshine for the belly. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Welcome to Brewing After Hours. I'm your host, Sarah Flora. Today, we're going to talk to Sandra Katz, the king of fermentation and generally all about fermentation. So if you're interested in beer, you're inherently interested in fermentation. That's the kind of the whole thing, right? My fascination with fermentation started long before I started making my own beer. When I was a kid, one of my favorite foods was my great aunt's spicy pickles and pretty much anything pickled in general. Fast forward to my teenage years when I tried to make these pickles for the first time. Knowing absolutely nothing about fermenting, I followed her recipe but was dismayed to find that the garlic in my pickles turned to an off-putting blue color. And this was just about two weeks in or so when it was sitting in this brine and... Obviously, something was happening in there. Now, this color was totally natural and just an indication that the brine had become acidic, which is what we want. Garlic can release these sulfur compounds that change the color when submerged in acid. This is actually uh, kind of a lauded characteristic of pickling garlic. Different cultures try to produce different colors of garlic, which I actually found super interesting because what I thought was terrible and disgusting, people actually prize some garlics for. Needless to say, I couldn't handle the sight of these pickles, and they were trash. So for a while, my fascination with fermenting turned into an outright fear that whatever I was fermenting was basically just rotting on my counter. I think my experience would have been better if I understood what fermentation is. The definition of fermentation is any metabolic process in which microorganisms' activity create a desirable change in food and beverages, whether it's increasing flavor, preserving foodstuffs, providing health benefits, or more. Basically, what we have termed good bacteria break down sugars and starches into alcohols and acids, which in turn preserve whatever food or liquids are submerged in them. Fermentation has been around for a long time. It's one of the easiest way to preserve foods. So before refrigeration was common, it was very typical to ferment your food so it didn't spoil while you were waiting to eat it. This is one of the reasons almost every culture has some kind of fermented food. Kimchi, sauerkraut, miso, kefir, yogurt, bread, cheese, wine, and of course beer. And all the other delicious things in the world. I just can't imagine a world in which we didn't have fermented foods. Basically, everything I like to eat is fermented in some degree, whether you ferment it first and then cook it and basically kill all the bacteria in it, or if you just eat it with all the good bugs and it helps your digestive tract. One fermented beverage that I've always found fascinating is called chicha. So chicha is a pretty broad term, most commonly for a corn-based beverage that originates in Latin America. There's tons of regional differences in chicha. They can be made from a 
a variety of starchy vegetables and a variety of different ways and methods of breaking down these starchy vegetables. And this beverage has been made since the Incan Empire. So it was very popular in the Incan Empire. It's probably older, to be honest. I became fascinated with chicha when I watched a documentary years ago and watched Peruvian women chew on corn to make chicha, and they also chewed on yucca to make masado, and they literally just chewed these starches up, spit them into a vessel, and it fermented, you know, wild yeast all around us. So I saw this documentary when I was a child, and the image of this documentary has stuck with me through today, and I think it's honestly probably one of the reasons I find making beer so fascinating. So the history of chicha in Peru is ancient. Corn was a hugely important crop, and there were many farms cut into the steep hills of Peru by laborers who were actually paid in chicha. I'm sure many of you have heard that chocolate was a status symbol among the Maya. Well, chicha was the same for the Inca. Chicha was used in sacrifices and rituals, including human sacrifices, by the way. For these unlucky people who were being sacrificed, they were rubbed down with chicha and then tube-fed chicha for days before being alive. This is like the foie gras of human sacrifice, it sounds like. So it's safe to say they were probably extremely drunk when they were sacrificed, but again, human sacrifice, not an ideal way to go. Now, if you happen to visit a bar and see chicha on the menu, the odds of it having been in someone's mouth is rare. Unless, of course, you got a chance to try Dogfish Head's chicha, which was released in 2009, in which they actually chewed up the Peruvian red corn and fermented it. I don't know if I would have the stomach to try that. I mean, if you're in this situation, you kind of have to, but oh, I hate spit, so truly not my beverage. I just think it's remarkable that people can drink this. The reason the starches were chewed is because our mouths have enzymes that can break down starches. Uh, It's basically a kind of pre-digestion, and it helps break down the food before it hits our stomach, basically easing the burden of digestion on your stomach. And I honestly think this is probably why people suggest that you chew your food well before you swallow it, unlike me who scarfs every meal down like it's my last. So the fermentation itself is just your run-of-the-mill wild fermentation. We don't have yeast in our mouths that can ferment, or we would probably just be consistently drunk. If you want to do some research on this, you can look up auto-fermentation, and it's a problem if you have it. The end result of this process is a kind of sour beer that can sit around 6%. I hope you guys are now interested in chicha because I feel like every time I hear about it, I kind of geek out. So go do some more research. This is obviously nowhere near even scratching the surface of what chicha is. And I know that Dr. Sandor Katz, who we're about to talk to, actually discusses it in his upcoming book. So now that you know a little bit more about one of my favorite fermentations, let's talk to the king of fermentation himself, Dr. Sandor Katz, about all things fermented. Sander, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. I absolutely love to talk about the magic of fermentation, though most of the time it's beer related. 
So it's really a pleasure to have the king of fermentation on the show to help us explore the science behind the topic. I think we have to start with the fact that fermentation tends to get a bad rap. The process seems to make a lot of people uncomfortable because you're basically like letting food sit for long periods of time, I think. And when we encounter someone who has these types of feelings towards it, how do you try to explain them what the fermentation process is and what the benefits you get from it are? Okay. So first of all, I, I mean, absolutely. I've had the same experience you have of like, you know, I say fermentation, people make a face, you know, what I take from that face is they have no idea how much fermented food they're already eating. Um, you know, everybody everywhere eats and drinks products of fermentation every day because they are so integral to all of our food traditions. So, you know, we might be thinking fermentation when we encounter like a really strong cheese or kimchi or something like that. But I mean, every time we have a piece of bread, every time we have cheese, every time we have cured meats, every time we use condiments, every time we have salad dressing or anything that has vinegar in it, um, you know, we're, we're eating products of fermentation and, and uh, you know, coffee is fermented, chocolate is fermented, vanilla is fermented, some kinds of tea are fermented. So, you know, an incredible range of everyday foods that people eat are fermented. So, you know, the first thing I do is try to point out to people that they do eat fermented things and that, you know, you would just have to be on like a crazy, crazy restrictive diet where you ask a lot of questions about everything you put into your mouth. If you really want to, you know, avoid anything that's been transformed by the action of microorganisms. So that gets us to, you know, what is fermentation anyway? What is it that unites, you know, salami and bread and beer and cheese and kimchi and stinky cheeses and natto and miso and, and, and all these other things is that they are all um, products of the transformative action of microorganisms. And, you know, people have been working with these organisms that are part of our food for thousands of years that we have documented. We've only known about the specific existence of these organisms for the last 150 or so years. So, I mean, one thing that's very interesting to me is that without specifically knowing about these organisms in every part of the world, people develop techniques for effectively working with them. And, you know, what microbiology is really illuminated is that everything we eat, all of the plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by microorganisms, but never one singular kind of organism, always a broad community of organisms. And so really the, you know, the operative question, the functional question is, you know, which of these organisms are going to develop? And, you know, really what the practice of fermentation amounts to is, you know, these manipulations of environmental conditions that, you know, have the effect of encouraging the growth of certain kinds of organisms while simultaneously discouraging the growth of other kinds of organisms. So, you know, I realize that, you know, having grown up in the midst of the war on bacteria, it's very easy for people to, you know, project their anxiety about bacteria, you know, onto the idea of fermentation. How do I know this cabbage fermenting in this jar is full of good bacteria and not bad bacteria that might make me sick? Um, so, so people project a lot of anxiety, but, but really fermentation is always like a, about food safety. And I, I mean, sauerkraut is about as safe as food gets. I mean, statistically speaking, you'll find that sauerkraut is much, much safer than any kind of raw vegetable. And it's not that that many people get sick from raw vegetables. It's very, you know, occasional 
outlying event. But, you know, if you took vegetables that had been contaminated by some kind of organism that could potentially make somebody sick, if you ferment them, the lactic acid bacteria that are always there are always going to dominate because of the environment you're creating that's so hospitable to them. And as they develop acidity, if there happen to be cells of um, uh, salmonella or E. coli or something else that could potentially make somebody sick, they will be destroyed. Fermentation is a strategy for food safety and, you know, all kinds of other practical benefits. Wow. You just blew my mind. You know, I am familiar with fermenting and I've made sauerkraut. I've made kimchi. I used to make kombucha. I make ginger beer as well as like making actual beer, but it never occurred to me that the production of these microorganisms is the reason that like these foods last for so much longer because it's basically just winning out the war on bacteria. That's so amazing. And it's crazy that we came to this like throughout so many cultures. What you make beer, I mean, is really one of the most complex of ferments, you know, because you're cooking your substrate before you ferment it. So, you know, if you think about wine, if you think about mead, um, you know, other kinds of alcoholic beverages are actually incredibly simple and straightforward. I mean, wine, all you do is you crush the grapes and then, you know, the yeast is there, the sugar's there. It, mm-hmm. it just happens as, as a spontaneous event. You crush apples in an apple press. The, the apple juice comes into contact with the yeast-rich skins and this fermentation just begins. You know, beer is just a lot more complicated because it involves this enzymatic transformation first which is the malting, uh, uh, which creates enzymes that break down complex carbohydrates into simple sugars that mm-hmm. yeast can ferment into alcohol. But then once you have, when then once you've, you've brewed it, then whatever wild yeasts were present on the original grains are, are long since perished. So you have to have some other strategy for, you know, for getting yeast in there, whether it's, you know, a cool ship that just lets the, you know, the cool evening air with yeast land on it, or, you know, whether, whether you're using the same vessel over and over again and not washing it. So it becomes the, the vehicle of perpetuation, a brewer stick, but, you know, there's always some kind of a strategy for, you know, for getting the yeast. And really a packet of yeast is something that's only existed, you know, since, you know, the very end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, all of the historic brewing before that, you know, had to employ other kinds of strategies. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I personally like sometimes consider myself a little lazy when I do this, but one of my favorite things is to actually pitch onto just an empty vessel that has like the runnings of my last beer on it. It always seems to ferment so much better than like just pitching a packet of yeast. It's always like so quick, so healthy and just like no off flavors. And it's just like, this is the way it kind of was meant to be done. I think. And and that's called backslopping. So when you take a little bit of the old batch as the starter for the next batch, that's backslopping. And I do that. I just actually started a batch of yogurt this morning and I used the last jar of my previous batch of yogurt as the starter for the new batch. I do that with my sourdough. I started a, I started a sourdough starter, I don't know, almost 30 years ago. And, you know, I never bake with all of it. I always save a little bit of it and feed it more flour and water. Um, so yeah, I mean, all kinds of fermented foods and beverages can be perpetuated in that way. It's so fascinating. I mean, the list of things you were going over when, but like coffee, I never think about bread, you know, 
it's obvious that bread is fermented, but I don't think anyone considers it a fermented food. Well, let's talk about some of the benefits of fermentation because a lot, I, I would say a lot of the interest in fermentation right now, you know, really has to do with our growing awareness of the importance of bacteria to our, um, uh, to our well-being. But not every fermented food is a great source of uh, living bacteria. So I would say that there's a, a subset of fermented foods that we could call the live culture foods. And they're, you know, they're foods as well as beverages that are consumed, you you know, without any heat processing or cooking. So, you know, essentially the, the ferment is raw after the fermentation. I mean, it's possible that it, that it was cooked in the first place. Let's say something like miso, you have to cook the soybeans. But if you eat the miso not cooked again, you get a lot of, you know, kind of, um, um, you know, dense uh, uh, probiotic bacteria that, that, that you're ingesting. So, you know, you asked about health benefits and let me, you know, there, there are a range of potential benefits from fermented foods and beverages, and they don't all have to do with the living bacteria, although the living bacteria can be really powerful. And, you know, I mean, we were talking about the war on bacteria and, you know, for someone, for someone, you know, my age who grew up, you know, kind of in the, you know, mid 20th century uh, uh, into the late 20th century, like I never heard a good word about bacteria. Bacteria were only talked about as something to be afraid of. And, you know, it was well into my adulthood that I started hearing people talk about the importance of bacteria. And, you know, now it's pretty widespread knowledge that, you know, every healthy human being is host to something like 10 trillion bacteria. And these bacteria, you know, give us a lot of our functionality. They enable us to effectively digest food. They, they, they enable us to assimilate nutrients. They synthesize nutrients on our behalf within us. So we don't have to find them in our food. What we call our immune system is largely the work of bacteria. We're learning that our, our brain chemistry, serotonin and other chemicals that determine how we feel and how we think are related to bacteria in the gut. So I think there's really like compelling reasons for people to try to restore biodiversity. And one way to do that is with, you know, live fermented foods. But that's not the only benefit of fermented foods. I mean, a bigger, broader benefit is what I would call pre-digestion. And this is the simple idea that nutrients are being digested by the fermentation organisms before we're eating the food. And often that makes the nutrients more accessible to us. So, um, you know, protein and soybeans. Um, I mean, this is the reason why the vegetarian subcultures of the West adopted a soy, the soybean as like a singular replacement for meat and milk is that it's got, you know, just so much protein, the, the, the most concentrated protein of any plant food. The problem is our human digestive systems are not capable of extracting the protein from a soybean. Um, so you never really hear about people cooking a big bowl of soybeans for dinner and eating them the way they might with chickpeas or lentils or other kinds of beans. Um, but with the fermentation, does is it breaks down the proteins, the protein, which is too dense for us to um, uh, access in the protein in, in the soybean gets broken down by fermentation into the um, um, amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins. And you know, there's a lot of different soy fermentation processes. There's soy sauce, there's miso, there's tempeh, there's natto. There's actually many, many other variations. You know, there are different flavors, different organisms, different lengths of time, different processes. What they all have in common is that whatever the organism is, it breaks down the protein into amino acids, which creates more compelling flavors 
flavors we would call umami flavors. Um, um, and, and it also just makes the nutrients more accessible. So this is pre-digestion. Lactose in milk that so many people can't digest gets broken down under fermentation. Gluten in bread gets broken down not by yeast, but by bacteria. So, you know, if you're baking your bread in three hours using a packet of yeast from the supermarket, you're not going to get a breakdown of the gluten. But if you do a mixed community, which is what a sourdough is, then the bacteria breaks down gluten and you just end up with bread with less gluten. So there's all kinds of nutrients. Also, um, you know, um, 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 grains, wheat, barley, any kind of grain has minerals and, and the minerals are tied up sometimes in these chemical bonds called phytate bonds that our bodies can't break down. But if we ferment the grains first, whether we're talking beer or bread um, um, or other kinds of ferments, the, the fermentation will break down those phytate bonds and make the minerals more bioavailable to us. So these are all examples of pre-digestion. All fermented foods are, you know, pre-digested, you know, to some degree or another. The flip side of pre-digestion, which is no less wonderful, is what I would call detoxification. And it's the same as pre-digestion, except instead of breaking down nutritive compounds, it's breaking down potentially toxic compounds. So uh, cyanide in cassava gets broken down um, um, under fermentation. Um, uh, oxalic acid in a lot of vegetables gets broken down under fermentation. So ver various toxic compounds can, can also be broken down by fermentation. And there's a range of foods around the world that just can't be eaten without being fermented or can't be eaten safely. Um, then also, I mean, nutrients are, are enhanced by fermentation. Almost all fermented foods and beverages, including beer, have elevated levels of B vitamins as compared to the, to the food that you begin with. Um, and, um, and then there are, you know, what I would call unique micronutrients Then you know, this is a new area of, of exploration, but like, you know, sauerkraut, kimchi, pickles, fermented vegetables have these compounds called isothiocyanates that are regarded as anti-carcinogenic. And they are a minor byproduct of the lactic acid bacteria um, um, digesting carbohydrates. Natto, this Japanese soy ferment, um, produces a compound that's gotten a lot of attention called natto kinase. Um, and natto kinase breaks down the kinds of fibers that sometimes accumulate inside people's blood vessels and can constrict circulation. So there's a lot of interest for like circulatory and heart health in uh, uh, natto kinase. Um, so, and then, and then, of course, the bacteria themselves, which is what I would consider to be the most profound potential benefit of, of fermentation. But I'm really trying to emphasize that like, you know, if you want your gut microbes to be, to be vibrant and healthy, eating, eating bacteria-rich probiotic foods is great, but you got to eat fiber foods. Um, you know, fibers are what feed those organisms down the length of our intestines. And, you know, the biggest reason why we have so such diminished biodiversity is that, you know, in our sort of modern processed foods diet, most of us are eating so little fiber and fiber is really what enables the bacteria that we rely on in the gut to, uh, uh, to thrive. You mentioned that the sourdough, when you do the three-day ferment, uh, it breaks down the gluten. You know, I've always heard rumors that like some people who are gluten sensitive can eat sourdough, but can't eat like your standard commercial bread. And one of my best friends actually is a sourdough baker and has been for the past like five years. And I would solely eat her bread 
it's really remarkable how different you feel. Really fascinating. Like, and I'm wondering, since our food has become so commercialized, do you think that a lot of the rates of like obesity, heart disease is a byproduct of us stepping away from like the natural processes that we basically evolved within our food system? I mean, sure. I'll say yes, but I don't think it's in one way. I mean, I think that there are a lot of of, of factors. I mean, you know, our, our changing lifestyle, just like we're less active, we're walking less, we're moving around less. So that's a factor. Um, you know, there's 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 increasing evidence pointing to glycosate, which is um, 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 uh, like a, a, a chemical compound that is used widely in in commercial agriculture. And there's all kinds of um, you know research showing that um, you know the ways in which that can you know alter our gut microflora. Um, um, and, and so, you know, there, so there are chemical, chemical aspects, including like how we are growing most of the food that we are eating. So, so yes, I mean, I think it's like, it's what we're eating, but it's not just like that we made dietary changes. It's there, you know, we made all these changes in the way that we're producing our food. We made changes in, you know, the way that, 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 that we're living. So, I, I mean, I actually personally think that it's a, you know, kind of a multivariable um, 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 puzzle, but, but I, but I think that, you know, the most important thing that I like to emphasize is that, you know, none of it is predetermined. I mean, you know, we can, we can change the way we eat. Um, you know, we can support different kinds of agriculture. Um, um, so, you know, we, we can make an effort to eat more fiber. We can make an effort to lead more active lives. So, y- yes, I think a lot of the sort of, you know, um, um, you know, conditions of our modern lives, you know, certainly are, 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 um, you know, encouraging, you know, some, some outcomes that, that are less healthy, but, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot that we can do, you know, as, as individuals, as, uh, you know, as a society to try to, um, uh, shift that. Yeah. And this conversation is actually, uh, encouraging me to change my diet because I've definitely fallen into the, uh, processed food realm lately, just because of my lack of time. It's so easy to do. And that this is one of the things that I'm always promoting about fermented foods is like, if you, you know, if you just keep some kraut going in your kitchen, you know, really easy. It takes like, you know, 10 minutes to prep the vegetables to make a quart of sauerkraut. Um, you shred the vegetables, you lightly salt them, add other seasoning you like, squeeze them for five minutes, stuff them in a jar, and then just give them a week to ferment. But when you have something like that sitting on your on your counter, then, you know, when you're grabbing a really quick meal, when you're just like taking a piece of bread, putting some butter on it, you have something substantive and nutritious that you can put on that. You know, um, um, you know, if I'm really busy, my go-to meal is like a quesadilla. I'm, I'll like, you know, melt some cheese on a on a tortilla, and that's not a bad thing. But I feel like if I put a big scoop of fermented vegetables on it, it just becomes so much more substantive. Absolutely, yeah. It's all about the little tips and tricks to kind of get yourself into a good habit. <laughs> Um, So in your book, Wild Fermentation, you say that by fermenting foods and drinks with wild microorganisms, 
present in your home environment, you become more interconnected with the life forces of the world around you. This really stuck with me. Can you share more on how our listeners can accomplish this? And is it just uh, fermenting things in your home that you're consuming or how do you suggest getting to there? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, uh, okay. So the title of my book is Wild, of, of, of that first book is Wild Fermentation. Um, wild fermentation actually describes something specific. Wild fermentation is fermentation based on the organisms present on your food or to a limited degree in your environment. Um, so for instance, vegetables are always done as a, as a wild fermentation. I mean, there are people who will try to sell you like a little powder to start your vegetables, but, you know, but, but, but don't fall for it. You, there's no need for it. Like all plants grown out of soil on planet earth have the bacteria that you need to turn them into sauerkraut. Um, so, but, but the specific communities are just always going to be different, you know, in your yard compared to your neighbor's yard, it's going to be a little bit different. So, I mean, I just think like incorporating things as local as possible, you know, if you do a little foraging in your neighborhood, incorporate some of those things in the things that you ferment. If you have a garden, it's not that you have to ferment only things that come out of your garden, but like the more localized the ingredients of your uh, um, ferments are, you know, the more specific local communities of organisms you're going to, you know, get incorporated in, into them. Um, and I just think that that, that that can be very powerful. And I mean, I sometimes will go to the supermarket and buy a head of cabbage there and, and ferment that. I mean, it's not that I think that there's anything wrong with that. I just think it's, you know, it's more powerful if you can pick some chives in your yard and mix that in with it. Um, you know, then you're just, you're, you're just bringing, you know, your, you know, you're bringing your environment into the kraut and into your gut. And there's something to be said about eating foods that are grown around you. And I've always heard that, like, if you eat honey from, like, where you live, then you won't have allergies. And uh, I'm a huge, like, urban forager. And I actually found a little urban farm down the street from me that I've been able to uh, support and get produce boxes from. And it just, I feel like it also just brings you into your local community more than anything, because I'm in the Los Angeles and, you know, we can get kind of lost in the big cityness of it, but every neighborhood is its own little organism in itself. And it's really wonderful once you're a part of that. Well, I mean, community gardens. I mean, I've visited community gardens. I'm in, in LA and other places in California, all, you know, all around the country. And I mean, community gardens are just such beautiful, you know, spots of, you know, people coming together, you know, people, people being passionate, people, people doing things together, people really feeling, you know, gratified or, you know, carrying on old family traditions. And, um, and I, I you know, I think that the benefits of local food, I mean, certainly extend far beyond, you know, getting the local bacteria in the food. I mean, I think, um, you know, part of it is, is it's, it's fresher, which means it's more delicious and more nutritious. Part of it is just economic, you know, rather than just like, you know, spending your money at a big supermarket chain that's going to go to a central headquarters somewhere into, you know, a big packing operation, you know, you're, you're just, you know, supporting, you know, people who are small scale producers, um, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of where you live, and then they're bringing it into the population center to, to, 
to, to, to, to sell it, but I think it's, you know, it's very powerful. And, and I think that, you know, um, uh, the, the, the pandemic has illustrated to some degree, some of the vulnerabilities of our, you know, sort of long supply chain food distribution system. And I think that, you know, the, the, the more we can do to, um, you know, encourage local food production and, you know, kind of expand the, you know, the capacity and the range of products that are, that are being produced locally, you know, the more security everybody has, because I mean, our, our systems of mass production distribution, you know, work as well as they work, but they're always vulnerable, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's, you know, fuel price spikes, whether it's like a ship stuck in the Suez canal, whether it's, you know, wars or, you know, I mean, it's like there, there's a million different things that can disrupt our supply chains, but, you know, the only, you know, real security we have is, um, you know, supporting and expanding local food production. A hundred percent. So kind of on this same vein, you wrote another book called Fermentation as a Metaphor that gets a little more into the philosophical about humans in their relation to fermentation. So how does the process and art of fermentation connect back to society and culture? I mean, in so many ways. So first of all, I mean, culture, the, the word, the word culture, um, you know, has to do with cycles. It has to do with what we seek to pass down from generation to generation. Um, and to, you know, to a not insignificant extent, you know, historically it's had to do with practice practical matters. You know, agriculture is part of culture. You know, how do we produce food? How do we procure food? How do we cook food? How do we process food? How do we produce alcohol? Um, you know, I mean, all of these things are, you know, they're part of culture. So, you know, you're a little kid, you're learning how to talk, you're, um, um, you know, learning the, you know, like the, the, the family stories, but you're also learning like how the family sustains themselves and whether that's like, you know, helping, helping your mom make lunch or, you know, whether that's learning how to tend the fields, like, like that is culture. And so, you know, fermentation, you know, in a practical matter is just, it's, it's, it's a part of culture. It's a, it's an integral part of culture um, um, uh, uh, everywhere. Now it happens that, you know, as our sense of what we can cultivate has grown larger and larger, um, you know, you, you, you're for the brewery, you're buying your yeast from, you know, uh, some laboratory that, that is specialized in, in propagating yeast. And, um, and they're, that's called culturing. They're, they're, they're culturing yeast. You know, people will call the little, you know, um, um, uh, um, group of bacteria that you add into milk to make yogurt. Those are your yogurt cultures. So with fermentation, we, we've, we've even come to call the organisms that perform the ferment, the fermentation for us cultures. Now, I mean, we also talk about in, in the English language, we use fermentation, not only in the literal way of meaning microbial transformations, but also in a metaphorical way. So, um, um, well, the word, the word ferment comes from Latin fervere, which means to boil. 
And it's because the visible action of fermentation, like how do you know when your beer is fermenting is, you know, you see, you see all these bubbles, you know, rising up. And so historically, this is how people have recognized fermentation is through the bubbles. And it's been, you know, conceptualized as like cold boiling. But, you know, anything that's vigorous and bubbly can be said to be fermenting. So in addition to, you know, your vat of beer or my jar of sauerkraut, um, you know, we could say a place where there's a vibrant musical scene and people are influencing each other like, wow, okay, that's a there's a lot of musical fermentation going on there. Um, you know, a place where, where, where there's a lot of thinking about, um, um, uh, uh, um, you know, political change, there's political fermentation, there's cultural fermentation, there's spiritual fermentation. I mean, really like anything in our lives can be fermenting in a metaphorical sense. And, you know, it's bu bubbly and agitated. So, you know, so yeah, my, my latest book, which uh, is Fermentation as Metaphor, is really, a, you know, kind of an exploration of, you know, some of these um, um, aspects of how fermentation relates to, um, you know, lar larger processes. Most of my work is really more like practical how-to, wild fermentation and the art of fermentation and a book which I'm just finishing right now, which is called Fermentation Journeys. They're really focused on, um, you know, practical aspects of, of fermentation. And, you know, there's nothing that we could possibly eat that cannot be fermented. The possibilities of fermentation are quite literally infinite. Since fermentation is becoming more and more popular, I, you know, you see pickled everything on menus now, and it's Man, if someone's got a good pickled onion, I'm there every day. That is my favorite thing. <laughs> I'm like pickled onions and like jalapeno pickles all day long. That's my favorite. So a lot of my listeners who are homebrewers may understand fermentation kind of more on the beer side of things over the food side. How is fermenting to create alcohol different than fermenting food or is it at all? I wouldn't say it is, um, you know, it is intrinsically different. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, making beer is, is you know, one of the most challenging ferments just because, you know, in the preparation of the substrate, you're killing the organisms that are there. Um, you know, you you need this, um, um, you know, extra um, enzymatic process, which usually happens before the brewer gets involved. That's the malt that you're buying, but that's been through, a, you know, somewhat um, um, intensive processing uh, uh, of its own, which is simply germination. You know, in general, like alcohol is not apart from, you know, other, other aspects of fermentation. So, okay. So alcohol, you need alcohol to make vinegar. So if you leave your beer exposed to oxygen, it will inevitably turn into vinegar. Um, um, if you leave wine exposed to oxygen, it'll turn into vinegar. If you leave a fermented apple cider exposed to uh, air, it'll, it'll ferment into vinegar. You know, right there, you can see that, oh, okay, well, if, um, you know, and, and especially in tropical places, like, you know, if you try fermenting like, you know, palm wine or, um, you know, other, other like, you know, traditional tropical things, it's like they pass very quickly through alcohol into to vinegar. So generally alcoholic beverages are also integrated into cooking. And so if they go too long and they become vinegar, then there's ways of cooking with them. And, you know, you're not going to 
discard the food resource. If, if you miss it at its like peak of alcohol, then, you know, you'll, then you'll use it for marinating or flavoring or, 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 or things like that as, uh, as, 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 as vinegar. So, I mean, I think most ferments exist along um, a continuum. Something I've been doing a lot of is making um, um, uh, miju, which is like Chinese style rice alcohol. So just fermenting. And, uh, you know, in any Asian store, usually you can find what are called Chinese yeast balls, these little chalky balls um, that contain um, um, a fungus, Aspergillus oryzae, that has enzymes that break down complex carbohydrates into simple sugars and also has yeast. So I, I, I soak some sticky rice, I steam the sticky rice, and then I, once, once it's cooked and, and it cools down, I crush one of these yeast balls in, I mix it with a little bit of water, and then I just leave it to ferment. You know, it becomes this beautiful liquid. I love to drink it as alcohol, but then there's residue, there's solid residue at the end. And, you know, there's incredible ways in, you know, Chinese cuisine and in Japanese cuisine to cook with this, to, to, to enjoy the, the rich flavor and the nutrients of this, you know, byproduct of, uh, of, 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 of making alcohol. So I, I would say that like, you know, brewing beer, making alcohol is, you know, it, it, it is, it is sort of a part of the sort of, you know, larger, um, um, you know, food fermentation. There, there's aspects of it that are distinctive. Most food fermentation, you know, is not trying to accumulate large amounts of alcohol. If there's a little bit of alcohol, you know, it's just a byproduct. Sauerkraut will always have like less than 1% alcohol. Um, kefir will usually have one to one and a half percent alcohol. You know, so di different foods that are not primarily out. Kombucha, it's been a big issue in the marketing and licensing of kombucha because, you know, typically there will be, you know, half a percent to 1% alcohol. But for, you know, in the US, for regulatory reasons, the difference between half a percent and 1% is extremely um, significant because with anything with less than half a percent alcohol is not considered alcohol. And, you know, a lot of products at the supermarket will have like coming on half a percent of alcohol because, you know, certain sugary substrates like orange juice, orange juice is always going to have trace of alcohol because you just like, you just can't prevent it. it. It's inevitable with any, you know, liquid sugary substrate, you'll get a little bit of yeast growth, a little bit of alcohol. That's really interesting. I never thought of like juices just inherently having a touch of alcohol. So this is a completely selfish question because I just wondered this for years and I've actually had conversations about this. We hear the term probiotic thrown around a lot, right? And I've always wondered since I'm in the beer world. So my beer is obviously not pasteurized because I'm a home brewer and that, that's just a waste. My question is standard beer that's not sour, technically probiotic or are only sour beers probiotic? Because I know like when you sour a beer, you throw in the lactobacillus. And I know that's technically like what you call the probiotic portion of yogurt and whatnot. So just wondering what you think about that. I would agree with you that like, you know, your typical beer where you pitched a pure strain of yeast into 
a cooling wart and, you know, and you're making an effort to protect it from random exposure to other bacteria, that you're not going to have a significant probiotic content in that. You know, if you're doing, you know, something like a cool ship style where you're just letting whatever is going to land, you know, on the surface of the cooling wart land, I would say that there will inevitably be a probiotic aspect to that. Doesn't it doesn't have to be extremely sour to have probiotics? Um, I think that with beer, there's another issue, which is that the stronger the beer, the more of the probiotics might get knocked out by the by the rising alcohol content. So I, I would say that the so 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 you need like you know a um, um, uh, like a mixed fermentation that includes a range of bacteria and B you need a, you know, sort of a modest, uh, a relatively modest, um, 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 alcohol level. So, you know, if you're, if you're going for like a, you know, uh, an 8% beer, that's just going to have less probiotics than a, you know, four and a half percent beer, just because, you know, the, the higher percentage of alcohol will make it impossible for some um, bacteria to survive. I love to think of sour beer as a health food. That's like my favorite thing now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's actually really funny. Uh, I've heard the anecdotes of people when they drink sour beers, they actually don't get hangovers. Um, and I'm wondering if it's something about the fact that it is probiotic and whatnot and typically lower in alcohol, but yeah, typically if you're drinking sour beers, you don't feel like crap the next day, which is nice. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I mean, all around Eastern Europe, people use sauerkraut juice and pickle juice as like a hangover cure and sour beers, you know, sometimes taste like, you know, beer with a little pickle juice in it. So maybe it's just got its built in, um, um, you know, hangover remedy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that it makes sense. Like as it evolved throughout the years, like obviously it was typically more probiotic than it is now. So I'm wondering if like when people had to drink beer, like to survive essentially if there wasn't access to super clean water if the probiotics in it actually prevented them from feeling like crap the next day uh, every day of their life yeah yeah i mean interesting questions i mean my impression is most places where like drinking beer has you know been the way people get their water is they're drinking really light beer you know but that couple of percentage of alcohol you know, can really like knock out a lot of the um, bacteria that can make water dangerous for people to drink. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I know you've collaborated on beers in the past, such as your collaboration with Yazoo Brewing in Nashville. So when you go into a collaboration like that, what do you have to keep in mind when it comes to the fermentation process and your goals for the final product? Well, you know, honestly, like I, you know, I, I am friends with all kinds of brewers. I would never really consider myself a brewer. You know, usually it's like I got into a conversation with them about some style of beer and, you know, they were like, oh, we should try that together sometime. And, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not like I have like a, a systematic process. The the other brewery that I have um, uh, done collaborations with um, um, has a name like yours, Fontaflora. Fontaflora in North Carolina. But, um, but I mean, I, you know, I love brewers and, and, you know, in a way I haven't done more brewing because, you know, 
I'm a little bit intimidated by the technical demands of, 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 of brewing. And, you know, as I've said a few times, I mean, brewing really is like among the most technically challenging of all fermentation processes. Uh, you know, most ferments are just like much, much easier than that and have just, you know, fewer steps and, you know, ultimately require, you know, less control, less need to sanitize everything, things like that. Yeah, I actually, um, I think among brewers, uh, the other side of fermentation can all almost be more intimidating for us because we're so used to like keeping everything so sterile. And so when you just let something sit and watch it, and you're just like, uh, it's just happening. It's just kind of feels like magic, but also a little scary. And I'm like, am I poisoning myself or what's going on? I'm used to much more control. <laughs> well, it's very hard to poison yourself. I actually, I, I'm, I have right here, I'm holding in my, my hands. You can't see because we're not on video, but um, I have a jar of tepache. And um, I, I used a pineapple the other day and I just like, I just saved the skins of the pineapple. I chopped it up. I put it in a jar, covered it with some uh, sugar water and it's so bubbly. And, you know, the thing is that uncontrolled, simple processes just very frequently produce incredibly delicious things. I actually just got to try tapache for the first time. I have a amazing bartender friend who started working at a Brazilian restaurant and started making it just in his apartment. And um, of course he was like, you have to try this because you brew beer. So um, and it's just amazing how simple it is and how delightful it is. And he's making cocktails with it now. And they're actually serving tapache at a restaurant in Los Angeles, which I didn't think was ever going to happen. And it's awesome how like these very localized products are becoming more mainstream available. Yeah. And I, th- I think for, you know, for a bartender who's interested, like, you know, you can make really distinctive drinks. I mean, tepache is one example, but you know, it's basically, if you take, if you take the idea of tepache and like sugar water with anything, you can make, you know, like soft drinks, you know, carbonated soft drinks of any flavor you could conceptualize. Friends of mine who used to have a restaurant in San Francisco, but they would make um, uh, an orange blossom cordial for their bar. And they, you know, they would just basically like mix sugar water. And then, you know, at the moment at the farmer's market, when, you know, somebody showed up with orange blossoms, they bought a box of orange blossoms and just put it in sugar water. And they'd get this like amazing, um, you know, aromatic, um, um, uh, a lovely, unique beverage that they would make cocktails out of. And I mean, I think that there's just so much potential for people to be doing more of that. And I mean, tepache is great because it's a, it's a traditional Mexican thing. You're working with a byproduct that, that, that people typically would just discard. Um, uh, so that's wonderful. But that once you start keying into, you know, how many things actually have a lovely flavor flavor that you can harness into, you know, just by infusing it into sugar water, you just realize like how much possibility there is. So what do you think the future holds for fermented food and beverages? It seems like there's a new interest in kombucha, fermented vegan meats. And, you know, I just think fermentation is kind of rising in popularity and it has been for a few years now. And just wondering what you think is going to happen next. Well, I mean, my perspective on this is that like absolutely people are becoming more aware of fermentation, thinking about fermentation. More people are playing around with fermentation in in their kitchens. And I think that that's really great. But 
you know, the products of fermentation have enjoyed enduring popularity. And, you know, bread did not just become popular. Cheese did not just become popular. Beer did not just become popular. Vinegar did not just become popular. So, you know, I would say like, you know, from our great grandparents' times to our times, to the times of our great grandchildren, like fermentation is going to be a fact of life. And, you know, and I'm thrilled that more people are interested in trying it at home, um, you know, interested in trying more variations of it. I mean, there's no reason to be intimidated by it. You know, fermentation is not uh, like a like a new thing that's just emerged on the on the culinary landscape. It's it's been it's been a fixture all along, whether we've been tuned into it or not. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's almost like I always say that uh, our culture was kind of built around beer and. and it's also built around fermented things in general, and it will always be here. We're not going to give up cheese and bread, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you have a new book. Do you want to share where we can pre-order or find it and anything else you're working on and where we can keep up to date with what you're doing? Sure, sure. Well, I have a I have a website which is wildfermentation.com, and you can find out information about my books there or my workshops. I'm you know, hopefully this summer I'll be starting to do a little bit more uh, uh, in-person teaching again, but the online things I've been doing are, 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 are on there too. Um, so check out my website, uh, you know, check out my books, uh, Wild Fermentation, The Art of Fermentation, Fermentation's Metaphor, the new one that I'm working on, Fermentation Journeys. Um, it should be out in the fall, September, October. I mean, I don't even think it's, I, I, I mean, I don't think you can pre-order it just quite yet, but, you know, probably in a couple of months, um, my, my publisher is Chelsea Green. Um, um, I'll have it up on my website. You'll be able to find it on Amazon, but, you know, it's still, it's still very much in, in process. And, um, you know, lots of, I mean, I'm so excited about, about, you know, the recipe development I've been doing, um, a big section on chicha, which is the whole world of, um, South American fermented beverages, um, some based on corn, but based on, you know, I have a quinoa one, I have a yuca one, you know, there's lots of different kinds of chichas, a lot of information about, you know, sake and different styles of making alcohol from rice and things you can do with the byproducts of that. Um, so no, just lots of, lots of, you know, new, new frontiers for me of, uh, of, of fermentation. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, I've always been fascinated by chicha. It's just like one of those things that every time I hear about it, I'm like, oh, I have to know everything. <laughs> well, you'll probably never know everything because it's such a it's such a rich and varied um, tradition. And so, you know, it's just it's a name that sort of come to cover just an incredible range of, you know, different kinds of fermented beverages. And they're united by the fact that they're all in South America. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I feel like I could talk to you all day. This is a fascinating subject. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's been a pleasure. Drinking beer, it makes you happy. It makes me happy too. It's truly man of the gods of Satan. Let's raise a toast, drink it up, sip it down, gallop. Thanks for listening.
listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandsband on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. Now, I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.